0: Welcome back to MERS Monday, for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, the team comes together to nominate their picks for the MERS Freshman Legislator of 2023. Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network also joins the discussion as a guest nominator. Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks describes what it was like to lead the Michigan Senate this year, especially with 40 years of pent-up policy issues on her Democratic caucus agenda. Michigan Public Service Commission Chair Dan Scripps talks about why his commission approved the Line 5 tunnel project. He also goes over his commission's new authorities under Democrats 100% clean energy by 2040 package. Now here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Rurink and house reporter Danielle James.
1: so much mark bayshore for kicking off today's episode of the mers monday podcast i am feeling so grateful today we are live in person in the mers world headquarters with our editor kyle malin the boss john rue rank our house reporter danielle james and colin jackson a political and capital reporter for the michigan public radio network we are beginning our Legislator of the Year Awards, where we name the lawmakers who stood out to us in 2023 and explain why. And this is pretty exciting. And Kyle, how long have you been doing these awards for?
2: We started doing them in 2010. And it was in recognition of the Lawmakers who were most effective had a high degree of impact and level of activity that kind of rose above. And so we were trying to really highlight people who were doing a good job in their particular you know, line of work. I, I think we, we thought about it in 2010. We ended up doing our first one in 2011. And this will be the first year where the Democrats have been in the majority. So instead of doing a Democrat of the year, as we have done in years past, this time we're gonna do a Republican of the year, because just out of recognition that whoever is gonna be our House Member and Senator of the year are going to be in the majority party, which are Democrats. So this is gonna be a different year. We're gonna have a, a different group here.
1: Freshman of the year. What is the significance of this one, though? What makes a great freshman?
2: Well, what we're looking for are people who again, are effective, uh, who have hit the ground running as they have taken on this new new role, have had a high level of impact and have been very active. They have been very active players in the arena as far as getting out policy, or in the case of uh, one or two of our freshman of the year who actually stopped legislation have been effective in doing that. I'm thinking of Gary Glenn in particular uh, when he was our freshman of the year. We gave that to him because he had a high degree of impact in stopping something in particular Uh, but uh, this year i think we've been focused there's been so much that has gotten done that i think we're uh, looking at people who have done uh, some uh, impactful things and have been very active
1: so warming us up is our house reporter danielle who do you want to nominate for freshman of the year 2023
3: Yes. Hello, everyone. I have decided to nominate Representative Carrie Reingins from the 47th House District for Freshman of the Year, and that's just because she's managed to have her hand in so many of the large bill packages and priorities that Democrats have advanced this year. That includes the Sexual Assault Prevention Package, criminalizing abuse under the guise of medical treatment, which was also her first public act, along with pushing for the House's version of legislation establishing collective bargaining rights for graduate student assistance, establishing the Reproductive Health Act, advocating for mandatory nurse-to-patient ratios, and proposal-to-implementation legislation. In total, Rep. Reingans has two PAs, one of which is a bill establishing wild rice or manumen as the state's native grain. Reingans is also leading an effort to establish a system of national popular vote in Michigan, which has not moved yet, but we'll see. She sits on the Agriculture and Health Policy Committees, the Health Policy Committee on Behavioral Health, or Subcommittee on Behavioral Health, along with serving as Majority Vice Chair of the House Higher Education Committee. Reingans also... You know, in my opinion, always has a pretty bubbly, positive attitude. When on the House floor, it seems like she has no shortage of friends, and she's also very accessible. She's always happy to come talk to reporters and make a guest appearance on the MERS Monday podcast. So that is why I nominated her.
1: No, thank you so much for that nomination. I think it's so interesting because uh, I think that Representative Riegan's has been someone to really br- bring the indigenous community into the Capitol and the legislature, and she that has been kind of seen in some of her bills because what was it that we talked here on the podcast about her bringing a official powwow to the yeah, state capitol
2: yeah i remember that
1: and also i think medical policy i mean it's something that where you will see bills be in the making for years And I think that a lot of these topics of, you know, how do you pay for care? How do you expand accessibility to care are often intricate issues. And I think we're starting a conversation of what this could look like as we enter a new chapter for Michigan.
2: Yeah, she's definitely been very active and has uh, got her hands in a lot of pots, so. Yeah, good nomination. And, of course, anybody who shows up on the MERS Monday podcast, we like
1: anyways. (laughs) I think that's what we look for, a lawmaker who doesn't put themselves in a box, you know, who isn't a single-issue legislator but is a multifaceted legislator when it comes to what they're introducing. Now we have John the Boss. Who did you nominate?
4: Well, this year I am nominating as the most impactful freshman of the year, uh, Dylan Wagella of Garden City. While he may not have introduced a bill that has been signed by Governor Whitmer uh, just 14 session days into his legislative career, he stood by principle and judgment and did not fold in the face of enormous political pressure. You recall back on February 9th, Wagella opposed Governor Whitmer and House leadership in voting against Whitmer's tax plan, House Bill 4001, over his opposition to the SOAR funding the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve. Uh, Leadership dangled over his head, funding to uh, erase Inkster School's $12.6 million debt. Uh, But the former teacher, who had a poster in his classroom that read, Stand up for what you believe in, even if you're standing alone, stood alone on the House floor and said no. Inkster eventually got its debt, uh, retired, uh, but a brand new uh, lawmaker reminded Lansing elected officials that they do not have to march lockstep with their leadership. Uh, That's something that is worth honoring in today's political climate. And for his courage to stand alone, uh, Dylan Wigella deserves to be MERS freshman of the year.
1: I feel like at the start of this year, I... I started asking myself, what happened to the anti-corporate welfare Democrats? Because you saw when the SOAR fund, the Strategic Attraction and Outreach Reserve, was initially approved, there was a lot of Democrats that had described this as corporate welfare. A few of them had opposed it, asking why would we give a corporation $1 billion. And in the beginning of the year, you actually saw quite a few SOAR fund big deal policy get approved. And some of those protesters... I dare make the observation had gone silent or were doing their opposition behind closed doors. So Representative Wegelow is kind of a, uh, am I allowed to say breath of fresh air, Kyle? Would that be okay?
2: Well, he certainly was sticking by his principles. There's no question about that.
1: It was kind of it was kind of like seeing like oh okay here we go they are still there still present so thank you so much John for that nomination
2: I think there's mm-hmm. some people in leadership though who just kind of cringed a little bit when well I'm sure they did cringe a little bit but, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> no, he gave them a big headache he gave them a big headache but you, but you know what it's it's important
4: uh, especially when you consider uh, impact with freshman lawmakers you got to remember public acts are one thing but uh, often with freshmen public acts are, are doled out. To vulnerable uh, members who are freshmen, so you got to look at other things. And I think just him standing up and saying no—that's uh, a lot. That's a lot of pressure for for a lawmaker who's been in office less than two months. I mean, that's that's. I just think that's impressive.
1: Okay, Colin Jackson, our guest nominator. Here's your time.
4: Thank you very much. So
5: I just wanted to say that this decision was hard for me. Um, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and nominate somebody. I bounced around between a few different people before eventually setting Settling on my original goal, uh, freshman state representative Donovan McKinney, and the reason why I think Donovan McKinney uh, should be our uh, freshman lawmaker of the year. First off, um, he's a trailblazer in the sense that he's the first black man to ever represent Macomb County in the state legislature. Uh, Something he talks about a lot is sitting on the Republican side of the house. That's his seat in that 56-54 majority. So from that aspect, he has a different perspective just literally sitting in the chamber than a lot of other people. He has one public act so far. Are, uh, dealing with uh, natural resources, environment, the Natural Resources Environment Protection Act. Uh, he has a couple other bills that could be signed by the governor uh, any day now. And on top of that, to Danny's point, when we were talking about having your hands in a lot of different pots, I mean, he was involved in uh, good time credits when it comes to criminal t- uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, He was involved in some of the foster care reforms that we saw earlier this year, um, dealing with bills dealing with Medicaid, uh, affordable housing, utility shutoffs, energy. Uh, He was a co-sponsor in some of the child protection bills that we saw, uh, the bills to eliminate child marriage in Michigan, uh, extremist protection order acts when it comes down to some gun legislation that the Democrats have prioritized. So I think that even though a lot of his committee assignments focus around appropriations, um, I think he's had a big impact in a lot of different ways in the legislature and is working around behind the scenes. And also, to Danny's point, he also seems like he has a lot of friends.
1: I feel like with Donovan McKinney, I also think that he's a legislator that we should be paying attention to going into 2024. He was someone that I really built kind of a professional media relationship with over the summer because he was ultimately inviting me to community outreach events that he was hosting talking about utility accountability talking about economic corridors for locations in detroit and some underserved communities and i am a bit curious to see what type of bills he brings to the table in 2023
3: Well, and he was also, when I was going through, you know, after the election in last November, when everyone was elected, I was doing profile pieces on all of the freshman legislators, and he was actually the only person that insisted we meet in person, which I thought was really cool and something you don't necessarily see as much today.
2: No, I was really impressed that he took the bull by the horns on the DTE accountability package. You know, as a freshman and being the one who wants to take the conversation on what we're going to do to hold DT accountable for all the power outages and try and craft a, uh, a policy solution to that. I thought that was very impressive. That's a very big piece of legislation and certainly not necessarily popular with one of the big interest groups in town, but uh, he's definitely been a lead on that and uh, is, uh, is working hard to try and get something through in, in 2024.
1: I think it's important to think with the clean energy 100% by 2040 package, there are Democratic progressives that did not like that package because it didn't have utility accountability measures within it. So I think next year, and keep in mind, a lot of these young progressives knock on doors for Dems, for elections that are handing out literature, that are doing phone banking. I feel like there's going to be a lot of eyes on this utility accountability package next year.
5: Besides having the... uh... Energy Accountability Package. I think it's also important to see the things that he hadn't quite got to a yes on, the things that he was willing to go not, I mean, almost toe to toe with leadership on. For example, I think about uh, the land value uh, tax, the land value tax uh, plan that uh, that Speaker Tate had tried to get through on behalf of Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. Uh, That was something that McKinney's boat was not on the boat for. Was his vote was not on the board for, for a long time. And you see him having these spirited discussions with leader, with speaker Tate. Um, so it's not just the things he is willing to go along with, but it's also kind of the moments when he's going to set his heels in.
1: Now we have MERS editor, Kyle Malin, making his nomination.
2: So I'm going to nominate representative Penelope Cernoglu. And, um, you know, she started the session with a bit of an advantage in that she was not only appointed to a chair, but also, appointed to a chair of a committee that was going to do a lot of things because of the implementation that was needed due to Proposal 2. Um, so to be given this responsibility right out of the gate showed that she had a con- had the confidence of leadership to get things done, and she did. glue is one of the freshmen that you're kind of surprised that she's a freshman because she seems to have been active all year, and you kind of forget that this really is just her first year. But I think having experience on the county commission and then being involved professionally in the political arena for years, I think she really just kind of took off. So cernoglu introduced 33 bills. As of today, she has nine public acts. And just by taking a look at the legislative website, that's more than any other freshman as of right now. And I know that the governor still has some bills to introduce, or to sign. But it's also more than anybody else in the House, Period. I couldn't find anybody else who has more than she has at this point. Uh, her committee reported out 47 bills, which is more than every other committee outside of judiciary, health policy, and criminal justice, which are you know kind of the big ones. And now several of her bills were the product of legislation that needed to get Proposal 2 implemented, but then she also did some other bills, too. She kind of expanded beyond... That template um, and took care of the automatic payroll deductions for PACs, which didn't really have anything to do with Proposal 2, but was a big issue for organized labor. Uh, She got involved in the Reproductive Care Act, even though she didn't get a PA out of that. She was part of that package, had one of the bills on the House side. Uh, She's involved in the conservator and guardianship package that the attorney general wants passed. And she's also involved in uh, this new effort that we're seeing on surrogacy reform on um, uh, people who end up having children through surrogates and um, creating a more... Uh, dependable and reliable uh, legal framework to make sure that uh, things don't go off the rails there and then also I I thought it was interesting that she testified in support of the homeless Bill of Rights legislation where she shared a period of time when she was a child when her family didn't have a permanent address and she missed third grade because of it which uh, was a a personal story she didn't have to share but again kind of trying to add uh, some perspective onto that bill. So Penelope Tocernoglu has been driving the train on a lot of election stuff, but the the thing that really pushed me over the edge on her was the artificial intelligence disclosure bill. You know, in the run-up of the February 27 presidential primary, she wanted to have language on the books that if you're going to use AI in a political ad, it needs to be disclosed. And so she introduced this bill like on Columbus Day or something, and we all knew that session was going to end in November. So this is a new topic. She's introducing it a month before session's going to end. And I'm like, okay, well, this is nice. You know, Maybe she'll get it done by May or something like that. And so I asked her after a committee, I said, so what's, what's kind of your time frame here? And she said, oh, we're going to get it done before the end of the year. And I'm like, okay, uh, we'll see how that goes. And by God, she did. And I, was, I couldn't believe it when we were in the Senate committee and I watched this thing go through and, and the senators were not like, just completely eating this up. They're like, they had a lot of pointed questions. And I'm like, there's no way this thing's going to get through. And by God, she worked with um, Mallory McMorrow, the state senator, who had some real concerns about it, and they got it through. So as far as I'm concerned, she checks all the boxes, effective, high-level activity, and impactful. So she's my nominee for freshman of the year. To cap
5: off that last point, though, about the artificial intelligence bill, not only did she get it through, she got it through with bipartisan sponsorship as well, which I think is another thing that when we're looking at the most effective lawmaker who's reaching across party lines, who's getting bipartisan sponsorship on some of these packages. And she did do that. She got that done. And just to be a freshman in charge of the House Elections Committee, I think that's impressive in in itself.
1: I mean, this got a ton of attention in the media, the AI disclaimer legislation. And I believe that this actually makes Michigan the fifth when it comes to states across the country that are pursuing these types of regulations. I know Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is heavily concerned about misinformation and its impacts on the 2024 elections. And keep in mind, I mean, we are living in an age of technology where someone could make a deep fake of you know, I guess they could make a deep fake of you, John, and say that you are running for president. Congratulations.: <laughs> <laughs> The president emergeds.
2: That in four dollars will get you a cup of coffee.: Yeah, four dollars four dollars now. Yeah. do they have enough uh, video of you though to?: I doubt it. Yeah. As I'm... far as video, I think you'd have to go back like 20 years. Yeah, to get yeah. They, they might be able to get your voice though, from the podcast Probably. yeah.
1: So I guess that brings me to myself. So while brainstorming for who I was going to nominate for this year's legislative freshman of the year, I came across this concept. A legislator who is technically a first year lawmaker, but ultimately does not give off the freshman vibe was the term that we were utilizing when I was talking to sources about who could I possibly nominate. I am now nominating Senator Kristen McDonald Rivet, a base City Democrat for this year's freshman of the year, because while 2023 technically was her first year as a state lawmaker following one of Michigan's most competitive and unpredictable state Senate races, might I add, it often felt like she was someone who we've been covering for years. She obviously sponsored the earliest bill to be moved out of a Senate committee this term, expanding Michigan's earned income tax credit for working low-income households from 6% to 30% of the federal credit, which was wrapped into Democrats' substantial tax reform package this year. She also introduced legislation expanding what the Michigan Housing and Community Development Program can be utilized for to bring improved housing availability to middle-income and working residents. Additionally, she was a sponsor of a now-signed package allowing owners of agricultural and multifamily residential properties to be able to join commercial property owners in a special tax assessment program providing private investors with locally ran financial security if they invest in environmental cleanup projects and infrastructure upgrades dealing with resilience against climate extreme weather I will also add that her Senate Bill 277 permitting farmers with state protected heritage farmland to rent to solar projects to exchange for not accepting tax credits while a solar facility is active on their property was the only bill in Senate Democrats clean energy package to receive some Republican support with Senators Hauck, heisinga and Weber supporting it when it was first voted on in the chamber and with Senator Lowers not voting because his own protected farmland received three offers for solar developments. And it's for those various reasons that I am nominating Senator Kristen McDonald-Ribbett. Well, I
2: think that's a great nomination. As far as the Senate goes, she has certainly gotten a lot of attention. And I think that's why the folks in D.C. have been looking at her as a potential congressional candidate. Uh, She's uh, strong on policy. She's she's strong on the stump. And uh, she has a she she's um attractive to both um folks on in the middle and uh in the traditional wing of the democratic party so
5: i think she stood out for sure in terms of flexing her freshman muscle like with that uh, earned income tax credit bill her proposal was a lot higher well it was i believe it was 30 percent i forget what the house proposal was but either way she wanted it to be higher than what the house was proposing for increasing the earned income tax credit and she got it done that was her that really push the line there and wasn't gonna back down on that 30% increase. And I think that's impressive too in itself. The first few weeks of session, the first bills introduced, and you have a policy that you wanna see happen and you make sure that happens. You're not compromising on that point.
1: Freshmen that don't feel like freshmen, I think that is often a theme, you know, in the terms of Representative Wagala, someone who took an opposing vote despite being a freshman and got a lot of heat for it. Uh, people like Representative Serna that introduced a package that got a ton of media attention and was able to see it get passed quickly and you know i again i think that is very much a theme of this year's freshman of the year especially following some very high intensity races in 2022 so now we are going to put on some suspenseful music and talk about who we want to be our freshman of the year everyone enjoyed my suspense music I think we are ready and Kyle, since I'm the host now, that means I get to say it, right?
2: Well, you do because you got to change out the music because I always did the Jeopardy music, but then you picked out something different. I like it. (laughs) But yes, you get to make the announcement.
1: Okay, I'm like kind of nervous. I'm shaking. Uh, So it is going to be Representative Penelope Sernaglu will be Merz's 2023 Freshman of the Year. Uh, We all kind of agreed that she had the public acts to back it up. And one thing that I also mentioned is that I had asked her uh, this past, this previous week at a governor bill signing. I was like, you know, what do you expect the House elections to look like next year? You obviously had a ton of bills passed out of your committee this year. And she said that she expected the same amount, if not more, as we talk about regulations, as we talk about voter accessibility. So kind of stay tuned of what more can be done in 2024.
2: You know, Colin had also mentioned that AI hearing uh, that she was ready to go with that.
5: Yeah, exactly. She You could tell when she was doing her first presentation, playing all the different uh, AI examples. Um, she played a message from, quote, unquote, President Biden congratulating her. Uh, There's a few different, I forget the other examples she played, but you could tell like she put a lot of thought and effort and work into that. And I thought that itself kind of showed, like, it's not just the policy itself, but it's also the passion for the policy.
1: So, that there you have it representative penelope Sernaglu, the mers freshman of the year uh, kyle what will be our next one next week
2: so this will be our first ever republican legislator of the year because in the past we've only done democratic legislators of the year because they've been in the minority this year the republicans will be so we will come up with some republican nominees next week
1: yeah and to all of the people listening we want to hear your thoughts of who you yourself would nominate feel free to find us on social media find our email and give us our hot takes as we brainstorm for the next week Joining us for today's segment of the Merge Monday podcast is Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks, a Grand Rapids Democrat. Leader Brinks is Michigan's first ever woman Senate Majority Leader. And one thing I learned for the first ever time, Senator Brinks, when I was covering the unveiling of your leadership portrait for the Senate Majority Leader's conference room back in October, is that according to the Center for American Women in Politics, you are actually one of only 14 Female Senate majority leaders across state legislatures in the United States, and one of just 44 women with one of the highest leadership posts in state senates throughout the country. Wow, I didn't even know those numbers. That's great. <laughs> uh, but I mean, overall, I mean, we have a lot to talk about today, but I do just want to ask as we start to think about 2024 uh, what is one policy issue that was not touched on at all in this first year of your leadership that you really hope gets some more extra attention next year. Boy, that's a good
6: question. Um we talked so much about the sort of the big pent up policy issues um that we were able to get to and that's been really gratifying. I know there's a a number of things that are kind of in progress that we didn't get to finish that I'd really like to see get done. Things like the Prescription Drug Affordability Board. There's, I think, more work that can be done, certainly on transparency issues. We did introduce FOIA. Um, I know that's something that lots of reporters are very interested in, but our constituents as well. Um, but that's something that we need to you know, start the committee process on and, and get moving There are other ethics issues, obviously, that have bubbled up, and I'd be interested in exploring legislation around those in addition to what we were able to get done on personal uh, financial
1: disclosure. Um, So those are just some of the things that are top of mind. One thing that we've been covering here at MERS this past week is a lack of unanimous votes. We have specifically looked at the State House, but also talking about the State Senate, How would you describe the current state of political polarization in your chamber right now? And is it something that you expected going into this role?
6: You know, it's the legislature. So there's always a certain amount of uh, back and forth. There's a certain amount of of, um, working together and, um, you know, uh, fighting for the things that we really believe in on both sides of the aisle. So there's a certain amount of that. Uh, inter-party conflict that you can just expect, right? I think, though, even given that, in the Senate, we've done a really good job of trying to respectfully engage between the parties. We've had excellent conversations between uh, committee chairs, between different individuals of both parties who have led on uh, issues uh, where, where... You know, there's a lead person on the Republican in the Republican caucus, as well as uh, uh, somebody working on things uh, from our perspective on the Democratic side. So overall, I feel we've done a really good job trying to find those ways that we can work together. We've obviously after a 40 year um, hiatus on a Democratic trifecta, we had a lot of things that were primarily Dem focused priorities that we really made a point to address early on. uh, in this term and in this session. And we are now moving to a distinct timeframe where certainly with changes in the House, we'll have opportunities to work together. Also, we have a a broad list of things that uh, we know are important to our constituents, whether they uh, have a a representative or Senator who's a Republican or a Democrat uh, representing them in the legislature we have an obligation to address the things that they care about. So I look forward to um, continuing a productive relationship. Uh, and I think in the the Senate, we've got a lot of good opportunities to do that.
2: Senator, you mentioned the Drug Affordability Board, which I know is near and dear to your heart. What is your understanding on why that's being held up in the House? Because I understand that there's some uh, there's some pushback or some opposition there in that chamber.
6: Yeah, I you know, well, we're asking more questions and working to get the votes over there. I think there's um, significant willingness to take a look at doing this. I think there's an acknowledgement that prescription medications are incredibly important and they're not affordable enough. Um, there are some other bills over there that would add some transparency to the whole, um, uh, basically, the supply chain and the cost of of prescription drugs uh, that they we're interested in pursuing. I think those bills are complementary to the ones uh, that we have moved over to that chamber uh, on PDAB or the Affordability Board. So I think what we're seeing really is just a pause in the conversation, and uh, we're just continuing to work on getting the votes that we need to get that passed.
2: And then the other thing, you had mentioned FOIA reform. And now this is an issue that been is kicked around every single term somebody passes it, and then it dies in another chamber. What are the odds that you put on some type of expansion of FOIA to the legislature and the governor actually getting to the governor's desk this year? Because I'm skeptical, I'm just going to be honest.
3: Yeah,
6: yeah. well, um, you know, in the past I had hope, and then those hopes would be dashed, uh, as you mentioned. So I've watched the history of this policy item for years. I think we're at an all-time high of mistrust of government from our constituents in many cases and so i'm optimistic that uh, the outcry of support for this not just from you folks in the press corps but also from some of our constituents who have genuine concerns about this uh, will help us persuade all of our colleagues to move this i don't know exactly what the chances are but i can guarantee you that in the senate we will um, begin hearings uh, as soon as we have our ducks in a row to do that, um, we've already been doing significant work on the policy just to get the bills introduced. Uh, so we are we're dedicated and committed to uh, taking that first step forward as soon as we come back.
1: As Merz's, uh Senate reporter, I learned a lot about immediate effect this year. Because in your chamber, because of the present day party makeup, you need six Republicans to get behind giving something immediate effect in order for a new law to take place immediately, become effective. You introduced a resolution that would change the rules so that way the party in leadership had control of immediate effect. Is that something that you introduced because you yourself genuinely believe that it would make the legislature stronger? That's a
6: really interesting question. I I think it would depend on uh, what was, if, if we did not have the cooperation on key items from the opposing party, I think that would be a, a more urgent conversation to have. Uh, as long as we have people who are willing to work in good faith with us, I think the immediate effect rule can be instrumental in getting good policy done. If you are at a position uh, as a state in in our political history where uh, the minority party is simply obstructionist and has no interest in actually governing, then this would require a lot more serious consideration. So as we, are, we were setting the stage early in uh, our term and in our majority, I wanted to make it clear that um, I'm more than happy to work together, but that means you have to meet me halfway at the table and we have to um, seriously work together on behalf of getting things done, on behalf of governing and on behalf of uh, the constituents to get a budget done, to get policy um, actually passed.
1: Was there ever a time where you were where you were afraid that Republicans wouldn't give the state budget immediate effect and you would have to take that resolution proposal out again? Well, I'm not going to really speak to hypotheticals. I think we
6: did really solid work on the uh, budget. We worked together. We had, um, uh, you know, committee chairs working not just with the other chamber, but with their Republican counterparts. We had really productive discussions there. So we were setting the stage for a budget that was. Good for the state of Michigan that brought resources home to uh, districts all over the state, both the Democrat and Republican. Uh, and we were confident that we could uh, get there.
2: I wanted to ask you about a statement you just made about the minority wanting to work with the, uh, uh, the majority in a, in a bipartisan way or in a cooperative way, anyway. Do you feel like the, uh, the Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt has done that this term? Has he, has he um, been a good partner? Uh, in in reaching some type of good working relationship,
6: certainly want to affirm that we've had a very good um, relationship. We've had a lot of good conversations. I don't want to diminish the fact that it is very difficult to be in the minority. And this is certainly a big adjustment for um, all Republicans. And uh, so I think that it's been difficult. Uh, But um, I think there is an understanding there of the duties that we have as legislators and as leaders of our caucus. uh, And we share um, a, a sense of responsibility for making sure that this institution does what it's supposed to do for the state.
1: I would like to dive into the Clean Energy by 2040 package that was signed uh, near the end of November. My question would be, what was a validation factor for you that basically gave you the assurance that you needed that this package wouldn't increase energy rates for Michigan residents?
6: Um, there's no way to predict the future completely on what um, on all the different things that will impact the price of energy. But what we do know is that the more sustainable and the more resilient um, our uh, our grid is and um, the sources of our energy are uh, the more likely they are to keep working in times of global warming or uh, with uh, severe weather. Uh, we also know that if things are working well, uh, they are more likely to be affordable for our residents. We also built in ways to help people save money, not just based on what the source of that electricity is, but um, things like energy efficiency, so that we can reduce our use overall. Um, and we were focusing those kinds of efforts on, very intentionally, a portion of those efforts on lower income households, so that the people who suffer the the most uh, with energy costs are also the ones who are benefiting from uh, some of the changes that we made here. So I can't predict the future, but we did a good job trying to anticipate how we can lower those costs while also achieving more sustainable ways to address climate change and make our energy reliable
1: uh, at the same time. I want to ask about the Michigan Public Service Commission, because obviously this legislation gives them a lot of tools, a lot of authority. Do you think that this three-member commission should be expanded in the future, and maybe there should be some regulations of who can and cannot be on the commission, similar to your proposed uh, prescription drug affordability board? You know, that's a, a
6: whole question I haven't put a ton of thought into as we were up to our ears and all the policy with the commission as it is. More than happy to have conversations if uh, that's indicated, but um, uh, that's a policy for another day.
2: I want to ask you about another policy that's been kicking around at dealing with possibly the MPSC aggregates. Have you given more thought to that? And with this new energy package that uh, the governor is going to sign into law, is there a need for more state oversight in uh, siting these aggregate mines, seeing that we're going to need more aggregate uh, for the windmills and the uh, solar panels?
6: Yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about um, aggregates being needed for windmills and solar panels uh, rather than infrastructure in general, uh, as has been the conversation uh, in the past several years in the legislature. Uh, You're aware um, that that's been a really tough issue to crack with the issues of local control being in there as well as uh, environmental concerns. So there certainly is a Venn diagram here where um, there are common themes. I would point out that when we were talking about um, uh, siting of solar and wind, we're doing that with a goal of cleaner, better uh, environment. Uh, And aggregates have, um, in some cases, had a real downside for our environment. And so there are some different considerations for both of those things. Uh, It may be a subtle difference to some folks, but I think it's a significant, it's significant fact to point out what the end goal is of uh, changing how we cite certain kinds of things. I do think on aggregates, there is an opportunity to have a conversation. If we need more aggregates and we have that uh, resource available to us and we have a need to use that in our infrastructure uh, to keep it affordable, to do the things we need to do to support our economy and our community, whether it's energy or roads and infrastructure. But the issues are slightly different than what we were talking about with solar and, and wind siding.
2: Uh, so you're not uh, it's not a hard no though i mean i sense hesitancy but it's not a hard no
6: absolutely not a hard no i would never take um something completely off the table that i think deserves merit in terms of the conversation here for the benefit of our state I'll say, though, there are no easy answers with that one, so I'm not sure if we can get to a solution very quickly, particularly in the political environment that we will see next year in the legislature um, and just in our state, Um, but I'm certainly willing to have a conversation. I don't think it will be a short or simple one, um, but I'm willing to take part in that.
2: And then I want to ask you about the dynamic in the House now, 54-54 until looks like late april does that change anything with with your agenda in the senate at all or you're thinking on when you're moving stuff
6: so you know we in the senate will obviously maintain our our 20 member uh democratic caucus and so we uh in well for that matter we'll, we we can't foresee obviously everything, but we, we have no vacancies at this point in the foreseeable future. So we, we intend to be back to work as usual, um, as scheduled, and we will uh, have a committee process. We'll have votes We'll be doing all of the work that we normally do. Obviously, we'll also be um, up to our ears in budget uh, very, very soon here. Uh, so there's plenty for us to do. You know, when I ran for office years ago, uh, when I was asked to run in 2012, I remember thinking, people deserve honest, hardworking representation. Uh, And that has been my guide ever since. And uh, that means that uh, we go to work every day and we do what uh, we are supposed to do to keep our state on track and to represent the people as well as we possibly can. Uh, And that will be no different in the first quarter of next year, regardless of what happens in the House
1: a lot of state senator names have been poked when it comes to some congressional seats ahead of the 2024 elections. Right now, there's a lot of talk about Senator McDonald Rivet possibly running in the eighth congressional district. What are kind of your thoughts? Have you told members of your caucus like, hey, well, it might be enticing. Maybe you shouldn't run for Congress because of how slim and tight our majority is? We certainly
6: wanna maintain our majority. Um, If somebody runs for Congress and and, uh, wins, we certainly don't lose our majority for the entirety of uh, our four years, right? Uh, There could be a gap, but, People need to make the best decision for themselves and for their districts. Um, Congress is incredibly important. So is the state Senate. Um, So I'm not going to tell people what to do. Um, They know uh, what's at stake in both of those areas. Uh, And I have confidence that, um, you know, Kristen mcdonald Rivet has been an excellent Senator We want to keep her, but all that said, uh, at the end of the day, she'll make her own choice and uh,
1: we will be able to manage just fine, uh, regardless of what that choice is. Now that we're near the end of our interview here, I want to ask kind of a more fun question. What would you say, and it could be political or not political, what do you think is your most controversial opinion?
6: Oh man, my most controversial opinion? I don't know. Maybe you guys should tell me that. (laughs) Do you have any top guesses?
1: Uh, Oh, I I was just hoping that you weren't going to say a pizza topping.
6: A pizza (laughs) topping. Well, I'm pro pineapple.
1: Oh,
2: you Um, know, I am too. I like that. With bacon and ham? Yeah. Oh yeah.
6: Bacon
1: or ham? Or both. Bacon and ham. Yeah. Maybe if you don't want if you can't answer that one right now, I what is your favorite Christmas tradition that you can't wait to do this month?
6: Oh, favorite Christmas tradition. You know, we love going out to cut the tree and bringing it home. And we always did that with the whole family. But now that my kids are grown, uh, we don't have them all back. So this is the very first year where we sort of debated, do we go cut a tree? Do we just go buy one? Do we decorate a house plant? So our Christmas traditions have to evolve and change just a little bit. Um, but either way, uh, I am committed to decorating some sort of uh, live plant, and uh, I'll
1: keep you posted. Controversial opinion, right there. Anti fake Christmas trees. <laughs> yeah, no fake Christmas trees in my house. Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks, thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'll
7: be home for Christmas If only
1: Joining us for our final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Dan Scripps, chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission, a three-member body of governor appointees responsible for regulating Michigan's energy and telecommunications industries, especially when it comes to energy costs and accessibility to those industries. Additionally, the MPSC has had no shortage this month in headlines it's appeared in, recently approving a $368 million million dollar rate increase for DTE to finance utility reliability upgrades and granting the state's blessing of the concrete line five tunnel that will be created beneath the lake bed crossing the Straits of Mackinac. And of course, how can we forget the tools and new authorities that the MPSC will have uh, after the governor's signing of the clean energy 100% by 2040 package. Hello, Chair Scripps. Thank you for joining us this morning.
7: Thanks for having me on.
1: So following Friday, this past Friday, where you approved things such as the DTE rate increase, the Line 5 tunnel project, is there anything that you would want to clarify or let our listeners know after so many uh, bold headlines and a lot of concerns and opinions circulating throughout the weekend?
7: Yeah, they they probably were two of our more um consequential cases that we've had this year and, and probably during my time on the commission. Uh, and I, I would just say, sort of, one thing on on each. Maybe on, on the DTE issue, the the core of our investments were really focused on on reliability, um, improvements to the the distribution system that DTE operates, and I think that's really important. Our outage situation is, in a word, unacceptable, and and we've seen it this year. I mean, the ice storms and the tornadoes, both major events, but but there's just no excuse for being out of power. For a week on end multiple times a year and and there are too many michiganders who had exactly that reality this year so we we're trying a number of things everything from a first and that's kind audit to uh performance uh based regulation looking at how we can better tie both incentives and penalties to the utilities performance but we also know that they need to to make the investments that are, are needed in that core infrastructure and that was really at the heart of of what the order was. So we, there are a lot of other elements around accountability that that we need to continue to pursue, but we also know that they need the resources to make those investments. And on Enbridge, you know it's it's been sort of an issue in front of us for a while. but the the core issue ultimately was, would you rather have a pipeline on the bottomlands of the straits or not? um and the we don't actually permit the tunnel, but but having the tunnel sort of moving forward from the the straits uh, or the corridor authority, uh, and and looking at sort of is that a a reasonable place to to put that four mile segment that was really the heart of the case and and in my view we're a step closer today to getting the bottomlands or to getting the the pipelines off the bottomlands and avoiding the risks that they present than we were Friday morning.
2: Mr. Scripps, just kind of walk us through the um, decision making power of the MPSC as it relates to the Embridge Tunnel. Enbridge would have had to do something technically incorrect for you all to reject it, correct? Uh, this isn't a situation where you're like, you know what, I don't really like what you're doing here, so we're going to vote no.
7: Yeah, so this is, um, our authority comes from Act 16 of 1929, so it's been around for, for nearly a century. We were the entity that permitted Enbridge um, to, to build Line 5, or the the predecessor to, to Enbridge to build Line 5 back in the 50s. Uh, and so when we look at cases, we look at is there a, a need for the project, public need for the project? Is it routed uh, in a in a reasonable manner? And then does it meet or exceed safety and engineering standards? And then we also need to do an analysis under the Michigan Environmental Protection Act. In the first instance, Enbridge asked, do we have the authority, and they believed they did, to, to simply do this without an application? Can you just sort of sign off on this, that our existing sort of easement covers what we want to do? And we said, this was back in the summer of 2020. No, for two reasons. One, it's a different location. You're moving it from, the, from one place to a different place and you're housing it within a tunnel. And two, it's a different different pipe. So they have two 20 inch pipes on the bottom of the, the straits today. This is one 30 inch pipe. So for those two reasons consistent with our precedent, we said you need to go through the full process. But in looking at those sort of three factors plus the MEPA analysis, we ultimately found that they, they met their burden. And that's consistent with essentially every other pipeline case that we've done.
1: Do you have any personal theories or explanations of why it's taken the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers so long to permit this project? Because you've seen things such as the Ford Blue Oval Project in Kentucky. They were able to permit that at a substantially faster pace than they are with this project. What What is your personal theory or explanation?
7: i'm not sure that i have a, a personal theory it took us a while too we this case was filed in april of 2020 and we decided it in december of 2023 um but i do think the straits are are unique and this project is in some ways unique and i think just trying to to get for the commission to to sort of fully understand all the issues involved um we had the record closed about a year and a half ago and then chose to reopen it because there were some questions that we didn't feel like we had the answers to on, on some of the risks involved and then once the record closed again in, in May, sort of the process of working through the, the different arguments and the different issues. So I do think it's an important case. I do think that the Straits are, as we all know, as Michiganders, sort of unique and important. And I, I think the process, I, I think, should reflect that.
1: Do you think that the political conversation around Line 5 and this tunnel project has evolved in the last year?
7: Maybe to some degree. I, it's not maybe not just the last year, but, you know, in some ways, this is this is a very simple case. Do you can you the the four miles, would you rather have them on the bottom lands or inside a, a concrete line tunnel? There's a lot of other issues to it beyond that. But I think there's sort of questions around um, the role of of fossil fuels in, in causing and contributing to climate change that. Um, that is also so it's on the one hand, it's about simply about sort of Great Lakes protection. And on the other hand, it's about a whole lot more than that. And I think those those issues were were difficult to sort out through the process. And I, I think because it address because it sort of is challenging in two different different ways, um, at least two different ways. That's that's probably what contributed to some of some of the, the the broader discussion.
2: Why not just shut it down? I mean, you heard that argument a lot of times just end it, what difference does it make Thing just rerouted around uh, Lake Michigan, around uh, Chicago
7: or something? So I, I wanna be really clear, the commission does not have the authority to shut down the, the segment that's there. The question before us was, should it be rehoused within a, a concrete lined tunnel? But we also looked at a range of alternatives, including the six alternatives that Dynamic Risk had studied um, as part of the Pipeline Safety Advisory Board, as well as some other alternatives that were brought forward and in each of those there there were challenges i mean it, at a minimum if you shut it down you'd probably rely more on trucks and rail and we found ultimately that those would would likely cause um additional environmental impairment beyond routing it in a tunnel because they cross more streams and more um more rivers and and that sort of thing as well as they they actually have more greenhouse gas emissions tied to them than simply transporting the the products through the through the tunnel so we actually looked at each of those alternatives and we found that either they they were unreasonable or infeasible um, and, and not prudent compared to the tunnel option. So it, it was a, a fairly thorough analysis that looked at, at at all of the alternatives that have been brought forward.
1: I want to transfer the conversation over to the clean energy 100% by 2040 package. I think it's fair to make the the evaluation that the MPSC has been given the authority to usher in a clean energy future. No pressure. Uh, But- A question that I have. So in this package, in Senate Bill 271, it eliminates pre-existing statute that set a cap for rate increases in order for a utility to comply with renewable energy standards. I believe that it couldn't go over a $3 increase on monthly residential rates. A lot of people wonder, with that language being eliminated, does that mean that increases are inevitably going to become higher. What is the MPSC's uh, game plan for regulating proposed rate increases?
7: Sure. Um. So first I'd note that other than the first couple of years when those caps were in place, they really haven't been used. The surcharge for um, incremental cost of compliance has basically been at zero for certainly the two major utilities and most of the others as well from just a couple of years after 2008. And so we're not actually seeing an incremental increase in the, the cost connected with the deployment of renewables. Now, there are questions, you know, that's one thing if it's 15% as it was sort of under under the law as it existed before Tuesday, is that still true when we get to 50% or 60%, which are the targets for renewables contained in the, the legislation? Um, and I, I think that's a fair question. But the other piece that the legislation has is it swapped that language out for authority fairly broad authority for the commission to to tap the brakes and provide compliance extensions if things were to be unreasonably costly, if there were issues in supply chain or the queue at the the regional transmission operator, if there are threats to reliability. So a, a fairly broad suite of things where we could say, hold on, this is this is going too fast, this isn't prudent. Uh, and I think sort of there's there's a question of what is unreasonably costly. Um, but it it does sort of provide that authority to the commission to say, we're not going to crash the grid or spike rates as as we pursue the targets that the legislature put into place.
1: I know a lot of proponents are highlighting how wind and solar power have in many ways become more affordable and more accessible, but I do wonder, is there a point to be made that solar farms and wind turbines don't come for free? They require construction. They require aggregate at a time where a lot of aggregate supply is already being dedicated to other projects. I guess I just wonder, what type of new expenses is the MPSC gearing up to see in its review process?
7: Yeah, we've seen the price of renewables decline fairly steadily uh, and fairly dramatically since the Original renewable portfolio standard was put in place in 2008, and I think there are some expectations that that will continue. Although there are you know issues with supply chain and and other things that that you were pointing out, um, so we need to to carefully monitor that. the The flip side is that the fuel is free, um, that the you don't pay for the wind or the sunshine, uh, and that's different than a coal plant or a gas plant. And then um, a lot of the increasing, particularly for for coal plants, the pollution abatement technologies that are are required to be put in place from the EPA add significant costs to those so it's you know i there's no perfect energy source including wind and solar i'm not here to to make the case that that they um are without their their challenges and intermittency being probably chief among them but those are issues that i think you know the legislature the best part of the legislation in my view is that the legislature has these decisions run through the integrated resource planning process that's been in place since 2016 which is essentially a balancing Process that we look at the utilities' plans and sort out among the different objectives that they're trying to meet, what is the best way to optimize that? What is the most reasonable and prudent way to get there? And I think having the authority to do that in this case as well um, helps to, to address those questions as they come up based on the record evidence that's presented to us.
2: You've been following what consumers and DT are have been doing to try and plan toward easing off fossil fuels natural gas and coal and going toward more of a clean energy transition does this legislation that just uh, got signed into law does that push them to do more when it comes to uh, that advancement does it accelerate that or is it just basically codifying what DTE and consumers were going to do anyway?
7: You know, they definitely have fairly ambitious plans that we've we've approved through the integrated resource planning process. I wouldn't say that it simply codifies. I think it pushes them to go a little further, a little faster. But ultimately, I, I do think it's consistent with the direction that they were already headed uh, and then gives some flexibility. So I think it was where they were headed on on the renewable side. I think the one hundred percent clean energy standard by 80 percent by by twenty thirty five. Um, is also sort of where they were headed. It's consistent with their corporate goals that they've announced. But it, I think, provides some important parameters around how clean is going to be defined. And in this case, it's a fairly broad definition. Um, It includes nuclear. It includes carbon capture on on gas plants. It includes other uh, technologies as they emerge that the the commission defines as, as being consistent with the standard through our rulemaking process. And so I think that sort of having that degree of flexibility and on how we ultimately decarbonize the power system is going to make it more affordable and give us more options to to preserve reliability along the way.
1: I also want to talk about how this package also gives the MPSC the authority to certify wind and solar projects large-scale commercial size. Now it does say if a local government has a compatible ordinance as aligned with state statute, then they can certify those projects. However, it also allows a project if it's rejected in one of those community, although they might have the appropriate ordinance to then go to you to seek certification even after being rejected. I guess for lack of a better way to ask my question, why is that? Why why would you not even trust the local governments that have these ordinances?
7: You know, it's it's a great question, and it it was you know fiercely debated by the legislature. In our view, there are elements of energy infrastructure that that serve sort of state purposes, not not just local interests. And you see that with pipelines, both on on lines like Line Five as well as natural gas lines, high voltage electric lines, carbon capture or carbon capture uh, pipelines that that's been in place for a number of years now as well. And the commission makes those decisions in each case. Um, around routing those lines because they serve state interests. And Line 5 is actually a great example. Our decision in that in the 50s was actually appealed all the way to the Supreme Court by a local township who was opposed to having Line 5 run through their township and appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the Supreme Court sided with us. And it's, it's, I think, trying to get that balance between having locals have a say in the process, but not ultimately a veto at the end of the day for projects that serve the state's interests as a whole. But all that said, I will say that this legislation goes way further than any of our other statutes in ensuring that locals have a, a say in the process. They get to intervene by right. The developers have to pay to a fund to cover their legal expenses of intervening in our proceeding. Uh, we have to look at sort of the extent to which they're already hosting energy facilities, the extent to which prime farmland is being um used and and i'll say none of those are addressed in any of our other infrastructure siting statutes we don't look at how much additional pipelines there are in the ground in a certain township or how many high voltage electric lines transverse the the township so and we certainly don't have the developers of those projects pay for local units of government to intervene in our cases so i think this is trying to get that balance between locals having a say in the process and having a seat at the table but ultimately for projects that have statewide significance, having a way for them to be able to move forward.
1: Commissioner Scripps, we are near the end of our interview today, but my final question for you would be, if the aspiration of the legislation that we're talking about was to create a influx of new wind and solar projects, what are you expecting to be, uh, when are we going to start to see these projects start to hit the ground? I guess uh, shovels hit the ground.
7: Yeah, I think we're already seeing it um, that there's been a pretty significant expansion uh, of wind and solar since 2008. And in even outside the legislation, as Kyle pointed out, you know, the utilities have fairly ambitious plans in this regard. And we've approved integrated resource plans that include significant build out of wind and solar. So I I think it's in some ways already happening, but the legislature actually gave us a year to to figure out the process. Um, So I think the first time that we'd see a case. It's a year plus the extent or the effective date, plus the four months that they would have to go through the the local uh, unit of government. So I think, you know, summer of 2025 at the absolute earliest is probably the the first time that we'd have a case in, filed in front of us.
1: MPSC Michigan Public Service Commission Chair Dan Scripps, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks again. Thank you so much to Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks, as well as Michigan Public Service Commission Chair Dan Scripps, for joining us as today's interviewees. Also, I would love to give a huge thanks to Political and Capital reporter Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network for visiting us today to make nominations for MERS's Freshman of the Year. I would love to give a tremendous thanks as well to MERS editor Kyle Mullen, the boss John Rurink, and our House reporter Danielle James. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Basher Audio in Okamess. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber.